So a couple months ago now, I showed up to work on a Wednesday morning and had a, kind of a funny conversation with one of our coworkers. Uh, she explained that the night before, she'd gone to a high school soccer game. Now, right before she left the house, she did what all, every reasonable person would do. She checked the weather and pulled out the weather app on her phone. Everything looked clear. So drove to the soccer game. Well, as soon as she got there, one of her friends ran up to her and said, did you see the forecast? And her heart sunk because she knew exactly what it meant. Her friend pulls out the, the radar and shows, it at her, shows her on her phone, and there's this giant storm bearing towards Wausau, and she's completely unprepared. She has no raincoat. Her umbrella doesn't work. All she has is this, this blanket that she used to, to cover over her head. As soon as it started downpouring, she was completely soaked. She wasn't going to leave because she paid $4 to get in. And my guess is maybe we can resonate with that story because I think all of us at some point in our life have been caught unprepared because of what we've been wearing. Maybe we were overdressed, maybe we were underdressed, but wearing the right clothes is probably more important than we might think. I am not going to wear sweatpants or shorts to an interview, but I'm also not going to wear a suit to run a marathon. I'm not going to go skiing in my swimsuit, and I'm certainly not going to wear my ski jacket to the beach. But even deeper than that, what we wear communicates something about our hearts. If I wear sweatpants to that interview, it communicates to the interviewer usually that I really don't care and don't really want the job. If I show up to work on Cedric's farm on a Saturday, and I'm wearing skinny jeans vans and a flannel, I'm communicating, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. If I show up to hunting camp on opening weekend and I'm wearing all camouflage, I'm communicating, I'd rather get shot than shoot a deer, right? What we wear communicates something about our hearts. Think about how that might apply to our life as a follower of Christ. What we wear the attributes that we put on, the virtues that we wear, communicate something about our heart. We demonstrate the authenticity of our faith by what we wear. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we're saved by what we do, nor am I saying that we can somehow communicate the gospel to someone by what we do. That's not how it works. There's no such thing as gospel charades. The gospel must be shared, and each one of us must personally decide to follow Jesus. We're saved by Christ alone. But once the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in our heart, he begins that work of transformation, slowly beginning to make us look more and more like Christ over time, beginning that work of heart transformation, and we see the fruit, the evidence of that. What we wear, the virtues that we put on, demonstrate the authenticity of our faith. But think about the converse of that as well. If we're not putting on the right clothes spiritually, if we're putting on virtues like Andrew talked about last week, like immorality and idolatry and sensuality and gossip and slander and all of the negative virtues from our passage from last week, if we put those on, think of the damage that we could do as a follower of Christ. If someone says, yeah, I follow Jesus, but then at work all they're doing is gossiping about their coworkers, it does damage to the gospel. If somebody says, yeah, I follow Jesus, but they're involved in all of the same immorality as the culture around them, they're going to do damage to the gospel. If somebody says, yeah, I follow Jesus, but they're posting inflammatory posts after inflammatory posts on social media, it's going to do damage to the gospel. It's important that we dress 
for success as followers of Christ. And as we look at our passage tonight, Paul gives us a clue. He gives us an idea that putting on these virtues, like compassion or love, for example, it's not natural. We're not always going to feel like doing this. If Christ followers always felt like being loving, then Paul wouldn't have to command us to show love to one another. We don't always feel, have this desire to put on these virtues. That's why dressing for success isn't a feeling, it's a choice. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, working in and through our lives to grow us to look more like Christ. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Colossians tonight, Colossians chapter 3, continuing our series. We're going to be in 3, 12 to 17, and I'd encourage you tonight to look at a copy of the text. If that's on your phone, if that's on a hard copy of God's Word, either one's great. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. And just a warning, there's a lot in this passage, and we are going to fly through it. This could be three or four sermons. Don't worry, we're not going to be here for two hours tonight. But buckle up, because we're going to fly. So here's Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Follow along with me as I read from the ESV. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord's forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's start. You can put your finger right on verse 12. He says, put on then. Paul is literally saying, clothe yourselves. That's probably a literal translation. Because as children adopted into God's family, God has some expectations. He has a uniform that he desires us to wear. And he says, first, put on compassionate hearts and kindness, two words that go together. Now, if we were to literally translate compassionate hearts, it would read the bowels of mercy. Now, that's an interesting word picture, isn't it? Now, for the ancient Greeks, the seat of emotion wasn't the heart, it was actually the bowels. So in the way that you and I use the word heart is how they would use the word bowels. Now, in my opinion, I personally would prefer heart, but they didn't ask my opinion. But compassionate hearts, in this case, then, is a pretty good translation. Compassionate hearts and kindness. And showing compassion is not an easy thing, is it? I mean, for the Greeks, compassion was not on the top 10 list of virtues that they wanted to exemplify. The elderly, the disabled, were often disregarded or far worse. But that's not how it works as a follower of Christ, is it? When we believe in Christ, we know that all people are created in God's image, that we don't have the ability to decide who we want to show compassion to. We don't just get to be compassionate towards our political allies and our friends. We have the opportunity to show compassion towards all people. We have to dress for success. And that's our first principle tonight is dress for success. You've heard me say that a couple times, and that's our first blank. We dress for success first by putting on compassion and kindness. Now, since March, it's no secret that we've been walking through a unique period of challenges in our life. And it's interesting that 
when there's a challenge, it always provides a corresponding opportunity. So think of a company that is an expert in virtual education, right? The challenge for traditional education is probably an opportunity for companies that, that specialize in virtual education. Think of the challenge that has been present for traditional retailers, has provided quite the opportunity for Amazon. Think of the challenge for a lot of restaurants has provided an opportunity for Uber Eats and Eat Street. I think of what that means for us as Christ followers. The challenge of the last eight months has provided quite the corresponding opportunity for us to show compassion. Because there's a lot of people around us, and you, you know who I'm talking about, that are hurting, that are in pain. And I think sometimes when we're going through something like this, you know, we can be so concerned about what's going on in here that we miss what's going on out there in front of us. And as Christ followers, we have an opportunity to be compassionate. And I think that can start with a really simple phrase, how can I pray for you? In a season like this, there's not too many people that are going to deny prayer, whether they know Jesus or not. What would it look like this week, every day, to text somebody or talk to somebody different and say, how can I pray for you? And then follow up with them and, and see if God has answered their prayer. It's a great way for us to show compassion is to offer to pray for one another. Or maybe there's someone in our small group, someone in our church family, somebody at work that we haven't seen for a while, and we just want to check in, shoot them a text and say, hey, how are you doing? Or give them a call, leave them a voice message, pray for them over the phone. Maybe there's somebody that's hurting, somebody that's in need. We can be the first person to lend a helping hand. As Christians, we have the opportunity to look for ways to be compassionate. We dress for success when we clothe ourselves with compassion. Well, then as Paul continues, he outlines another pair of attributes that go together, kindness and, or humility rather, and meekness. They fit together quite nicely. Humility is not just thinking of ourselves less, but it's thinking less of ourselves. And meekness, it rhymes with weakness, but the two words really aren't related. Meekness is power under control. Meekness is not being impressed with our own importance. And when I look at the Old Testament, when I think of someone who was the opposite of meek, was the opposite of humble, I think of a guy named Haman. <laughs> you remember Haman? Haman from the book of Esther, and quite the guy. He had convinced himself that he was the second most important person in the entire kingdom. And the king approaches Haman and says, well, what should I do for the man that I delight to honor? And Haman thinks, ah, he's talking about me. So Haman dreams up his dream day and says, you know, take, take, take this man and put him on your donkey and put your crown on his head and put your robes on him and parade him through the streets and have everyone worship him. And the king replies, yeah, do that for my man Mordecai. <laughs> and Haman's heart just drops because Haman hated Mordecai. You remember why? Because Mordecai refused to bow down and worship Haman. Haman was filled with pride so excessively that it led to his demise where he was killed on the same gallows that he built for Mordecai. Haman was not a humble guy. And even in Paul's culture, humility and meekness were not on the top 10 list of attributes. <laughs> you look at our culture, we could say the same thing, couldn't we? Humility and meekness are not often heralded in our culture. Look at the people in our world that are often looked up to with the highest regard. Maybe a top-level CEO or a really good professional athlete, movie star. It's not groups of people that are generally characterized by humility. 
But as followers of Christ, humility and meekness, they're not disadvantages, but they're advantages. Because that's how Jesus lived his life. Think of Philippians 2. Jesus came and he humbled himself by taking on our form and our flesh, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. At its core, the gospel is centered on humility. We need humility. We need to think of others more important than ourselves. We need to put on and clothe ourselves with humility. <laughs> well, how do we grow in humility? How do we put on humility? Well, sometimes God does that work for us and humbles us. <laughs> and that's not very fun, is it? I can think of a lot of stories that we definitely don't have time to share today <laughs> about how God has done that in my life. And maybe you can think of some too. But even beyond God doing that work of humbling in our life, maybe we could memorize a passage like Philippians 2, 1 through 11 and think and meditate on what it means to be a humble person. Or maybe when somebody else does a really nice job, we compliment them. We write them a note. We send them an email. We send them a text and encourage them. Maybe we feel like we're in competition with somebody at work and, and we just go out of our way to make them look good. Or when somebody compliments us, then we try to reflect the praise on others or onto the Lord. There's some practical, some simple ways that you and I can grow in humility. <laughs> oh, and then when we thought that the list couldn't get any harder, Paul throws the word patience at us. He says, I want you to put on patience. It's not my favorite word. <laughs> Maybe you love patience. I don't know. I just wish the Lord would magically just give me patience, but I don't think that's how it works. A couple months ago now, I was on the phone praying with somebody from our church and took some requests and then had a chance to pray for him. And I asked in the prayer that God might give him patience. And I said, amen. And he said, hey, before I let you go, he kindly said, you know, when you pray for me next, never pray for patience. <laughs> because every time I ask for patience, God gives me that situation I can't handle. And it's frustrating. And I quietly said, that's just fine. I can honor that request and I won't pray for patience for you. But I hung up the phone and thought, not sure I agree with that. I understand what he's getting at, <laughs> but unfortunately, isn't that just how it works with all these attributes? When we pray for patience, when we ask God for humility, when we ask God to grow our meekness and our kindness and our compassion, does he just magically give us patience? Or does he give us an opportunity to grow in patience, meanwhile giving us the strength and the opportunity to grow? the latter. I think that's how it works. I think it's okay for us to pray for patience, knowing that God might give us a situation that we feel like we just can't handle, but he promises then to give us the strength to grow. Patience. Well, then as Paul continues, he adds a couple more virtues to the list in verse 13. Let me read that again. Bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord's forgiven you, you also must forgive. Bearing with one another, kind of a weird phrase, it's getting at forbearance there. Forbearance, and then the next half of the verse, forgiveness. Really easy things to talk about, but if we're being honest, difficult things to live out. Let's talk for a moment about forbearance. Not a word we use often, but it means extending extra grace. It means assuming the best. It means maybe hanging out with someone or being kind towards someone that we might not normally be inclined to like, forbearance. And think about how that might apply to us in 
the church family or even in our physical family. You know, you know the phrase, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And that's great until that strange relative keeps coming to Thanksgiving that no one really wants to talk to, right? And maybe that same sentiment applies within the young adult family. Maybe there's somebody in our small group you just aren't naturally inclined to like. I'm not saying that, you know, you're antagonistic or you're mean towards them. You just don't like them. You don't talk to them. But think for a moment about our small groups. What's the point of a young adult small group? Well, it's not to make friends, though that can be a good side benefit. The point of a small group is to help one another grow to look more like Jesus and to love Jesus more. We're a family. We're hopefully also friends, but we're a family. And that means that maybe we extend some extra grace towards somebody in our small group. Maybe it means that there's somebody that we need to give a chance to relationally. I think we have to be best friends. But being part of the family means that we extend forbearance, that we extend that extra kindness toward one another. And as Paul continues, he says, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Again, forgiveness, it's an easy thing to talk about, but it's a hard thing to live out. And I mean, we know what the passage said. It says, we forgive because Jesus has forgiven us. And, and we understand the motivation behind it, but we understand that the baseline as a person is holding a grudge. That's the standard, isn't it? It's really easy for us to do. But forgiveness <laughs> takes work. It's hard. And I think there can be some confusion on what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Forgiveness, it literally means to absorb a debt, which is kind of easy for us to think through when we're talking about a financial sin. You know, let's say somebody steals money from you. Great, I'll absorb that debt. But 95% of the time, when somebody sins against us, it's not financial, is it? It's emotional. So then who ends up paying the price of that emotional sin? We do. Often in the form of bitterness and anger, frustration, maybe even guilt and shame. And we can carry that emotional pain, that bitterness, for days, for months, for years, for decades. But forgiveness means letting go of the bitterness and the anger. And it looks a little bit like this. I'm praying to Jesus and, and saying, Jesus, I accept the consequences for the way that Sam has sinned against me. And Jesus, I take that sin, the bitterness, the anger, all of it, and I give it to you because you paid for it at the cross. Please help me forgive. Almost thinking transactionally, taking that sin, taking the pain and the brokenness and giving it to Jesus because he paid for it. That's what it means to forgive. And when we extend that forgiveness to someone, it means that we're not going to hold the sin against them. It means that we're deciding not to remember their sin anymore. It means we're not going to gossip and tell other people about their sin. We're not going to use the sin as leverage in their life. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be best friends with that person down the road, but it means that we're letting go of holding that sin against them because we gave it to Christ. Forgiveness is the expectation as followers of Christ. And this, the way that Paul constructed that passage is actually kind of frustrating. He's saying that as soon as someone sins against me, then I need to forgive them. 
I'm not, I, I'm not supposed to just wait for the person to come and grovel at my feet and ask for forgiveness. No, I extend forgiveness, Paul says, even before they ask. That's what forgiveness looks like as members of Jesus' family, the church. Well, then as Paul continues, he highlights the most important virtue. He says, above all of these things, or literally on top of all of these things, clothe yourselves in love. And living in north central Wisconsin, we understand this metaphor because by far, what is the most important article of clothing that is in our closet? A winter coat, right? It doesn't matter how nice your suit is. It doesn't matter how trendy our outfit is. If we don't have a winter coat in January, we're going to freeze to death. That's just how it works. And that's what Paul is saying here. It doesn't matter if we have compassion. It doesn't matter if we have mercy and kindness and forgiveness. If we don't have love, we're going to freeze to death. This is the most important virtue. And there's so much confusion in our world surrounding love, isn't there? We use the word love to describe just about anything. It's often used to describe a feeling, an emotional attachment, but that's not at all how Paul is using the word love in this passage. Love, the Greek word agape, it's an unconditional, sacrificial love, not a feeling, but a choice, a choice to put the needs of others first. Love is a sacrifice, loving others before we love ourselves, living in an I am third world. Maybe you've seen those bracelets before. Pretty cool. God first, other second, and simply I am third. That's what it means to love. And just like compassion, we don't have the ability as followers of Christ to decide who we're going to show love towards. Our love is unconditional. And as I've been thinking about how this maybe could apply a little bit to my life right now, I've been reminded of the challenge of the last couple of months. It's been really hard. At least for me, I don't know if you'd say the same thing, but at least for me, when I'm going through a struggle or a trial, when I'm in pain, I'm looking inward, not outward. And I think at least subconsciously, if not consciously, I've played the pandemic card and said, ah, yeah, I don't need to love that person right now. Feeling like somehow I'm excused from showing love because of what we're going through. It's convicted that that doesn't work, does it? Because think about Jesus. Jesus showed ultimate love for you and for me through his suffering. So when we show love to one another, when we're walking through the pain, that doesn't exempt us from showing love. God still has the standard of putting on that winter coat. How can we do that? What does it look like to show sacrificial love in the middle of a pandemic? Well, maybe we can take some time to talk about that a little bit in our small group. But love, the most important virtue, we need to make sure we put that on so that we don't freeze to death. Well, as Paul continues, he changes gears a little bit in verse 16. Let me read that for us. And Paul says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ, quite simply, it's the message of the gospel, the good news about what Christ has done for us. And he says, let the gospel dwell richly in your hearts. When I think of the word richly, reminds me of my favorite dessert. What's your favorite dessert? Hopefully you ate dinner. 
picture your favorite dessert. For me, it is this multi-layered chocolate cake with peanut butter cheesecake in three layers covered with peanut butter frosting that has to, Hannah makes it and it's unbelievable. I could go for some tonight, but that's okay. Um, No pressure, Hannah. It has to have a thousand calories in every bite. And I promise that it is worth every single calorie. It is that good. Now, when I enjoy that dessert, I am not going to inhale it like I would uh, frozen pizza, right? I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to savor every bite. That's the word Paul is using here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Instead of inhaling God's word like a frozen pizza, we're supposed to enjoy it like a dessert. But how often do we spend time reading God's word and five minutes later, I forget what I read? Or how often do we read it and just kind of check the box and say, ah, you know, I, I did my Bible reading today, so Jesus loves me, and then 10 minutes later, we can't remember what chapter, what verse we read. That's not how we should be reading the Bible. Take your time. Savor in it. Soak in it. Meditate on it. Ask the Lord, how do you want this to change my life today? But if I'm being honest, when Paul is talking about, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, he's not talking about our personal Bible reading at all. And how do we know that? Well, let the word of Christ dwell in you. In the Greek is not a you singular, it's a you plural. Let the word of Christ dwell in you together, church, family. And then he gives us an idea of what that might look like, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. He's certainly thinking about biblical teaching and preaching of God's word. One of the best ways that we can dwell in the gospel together is by listening to good teaching. Maybe it's a Sunday morning, maybe it's a Monday night, maybe it's a midweek Bible study. But it's important for us to intake good biblical teaching. And I think that's one of the advantages, one of the best things about technology in our world today. We have access to enough biblical teaching that you could listen to a sermon for every minute for the rest of your life, and I think there'd still be more sermons. There's that many on the internet. I mean, think of Right Now Media, an incredible resource for us today. It's the Christian version of YouTube. Highland has a subscription to it, and you just have to call our office or email our office. They'll give you login credentials, and you can watch all of these great Bible study resources on there for free without advertisements. It's absolutely amazing. But even beyond Right Now Media, even using a podcast app on our phone or Spotify or or the internet to find some sermons that we could listen to while we're working out, while we're driving in the car, while we're enjoying some time on a day off, it's a great way for us to intake God's Word. It shouldn't replace our Bible reading, but it'd be a great supplement to it. Now, here's my disclaimer. Not all sermons are created equal. Just because someone says they're a pastor does not mean that we should listen to their sermon. Every sermon is just as good as its faithfulness to God's word. So be very careful. I wouldn't just Google sermons and click the first link. I think it'd be a great idea, even in your small group tonight, to ask our leaders, who are some pastors that you'd recommend listening to? What are some great sermons, some podcasts that we could uh, listen to even this week? Maybe you'll be driving, maybe not. It'd be a great way to spend some time this week is listening to some sermons. And as Paul continues, he gives us another idea on how we can let the gospel dwell in us richly. He says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness 
in your hearts to God. Without being overly technical, Paul is actually identifying three different types of worship music in the church at Colossae, helping us understand that style is secondary, but the content of the songs is what's primary, that we don't have to divide over worship style, but we have to together declare uh, the song. The songs must, must declare the message of the gospel. But it's kind of cool. He says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Paul is actually commanding us in this text to sing because music is powerful. Music has an effect on each of us, and music actually helps us remember things. It's an educational technique that's been around forever. Remember in elementary school, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and that's all I can remember, so clearly it didn't work for me, right? <laughs> I was talking to Hannah's grandpa uh, a couple days ago, and uh, he's in his 80s, and we were talking about music and music in the church, and he was talking about these old songbooks that he has from when he was a teenager, and he'll pull them out, and even though he hasn't sung the song in 70 years, it will come back to him like that. That is the power of music. And when we combine the goodness of the gospel, these amazing biblical truths, and we put them to music, we're taking the gospel truths and driving them deep into our hearts. Singing is a great way for us to dwell in the gospel together, and Matthias is already practicing. <laughs> Singing is powerful, and it's not actually something that's optional. It's something that's commanded in this text. So to steal words from maybe my favorite contemporary theologian, Elf, <laughs> what's the best way to spread Christmas cheer? Singing loud for all to hear. Now, let me ask a different question, which I know some of you have already watched Elf, okay? It's, I know it's November. Some of you watch it five or six times a year. We won't judge you for that. But I, I'll, I'm going to ask a different question, but I want you to provide the same answer. What is one of the best ways to drive the gospel deep into our hearts, singing loud for all to hear? And that's our second principle tonight, sing loud for all to hear. <laughs> and some of us who love music, this doesn't sound like that big of a deal. For others of us that don't really like to sing or don't feel like the Lord gave us a great voice, this might be a little bit controversial, but hang in there with me. Because the Psalms say raise a joyful noise to the Lord. It doesn't say anything about having a good voice, right? And I think maybe we can agree together as a young adult family that we're just going to extend some extra grace when it comes to the area of singing. Maybe we gather together on a Sunday morning or we gather together for a third Monday worship service and there's somebody like right over our right shoulder that is singing loud and they're singing off key. And you know what we do? We kind of look over our shoulder and we give them that look like, dude, quiet down. You're like, annoying me right now. You know what I'm talking, you've never, I know I'm the only one that gives that glance, right? I know you've never done that, but maybe we can agree just not to give those judgmental glances because the person behind my shoulder is actually being obedient to this text. They're doing what Christ has commanded them to do. So instead of judging them, then what we should do is just sing louder to drown them out, right? <laughs> I actually didn't think that was that funny, but that's okay. <laughs> I actually, I'm actually serious, so 
sing loud for all to hear. It's one of the best ways for us to drive those gospel truths so deep into our hearts. So I expect next third Monday to be like twice as loud as last third Monday. And for me, when I'm going through something tough, singing is one of the best things that I can do for my heart. When Paul and Silas were in prison, it's midnight, and what are they doing? They're singing hymns. One of the best things that we can do in the midst of a struggle and a trial is to sing to Jesus and drive those gospel truths from our head all the way down into our heart. Well, let me keep reading here in verse 15. You might have noticed that I skipped over it. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of Christ. (laughs) I think everybody wants peace right now, don't they? It's kind of a buzzword in our world today. Peace. But Paul's not just talking about tranquility and serenity here. He's talking about something far different. That peace is a vertical peace with God, a rightness in our relationship with God, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that the wall of hostility has been torn down, knowing that we're not enemies of God, but that he calls us his friend, that is peace. And when we have that vertical peace with God, then it extends a horizontal peace into our circumstances. Because when we know we have a right relationship with God, we know where we're going when we die, we know we have that hope of eternity with Christ, and there's nothing we have to worry about. We have peace. But that horizontal peace is dependent on that vertical peace, isn't it? And I think that's one of the reasons why our world has had such a difficult time with this pandemic, because it's brought a sense of imminency. It's reminded us that our lives are fragile, that we don't have control. And when someone doesn't have the peace of God to lean on, then a trial like this is even tougher than it already is. And maybe there's a chance that you don't have that peace with God tonight. Maybe there's a chance that your sins haven't been forgiven, that you've never turned to him in salvation, that you're still God's enemy because all of us are born in sin. We're all born natural enemies with God. No one is a good person. But Jesus came to earth living the life we never could have lived, dying in our place, offering us a free gift of salvation for all who would believe that he died for their sins. And if you've never believed in Christ for your salvation, that's the most important decision you can make. Believe in him. Turn to him in salvation. And for all of us, when we turn to Christ, when we have salvation, then we have that peace with God that then can extend to our circumstances. But Paul's not just telling us in this passage to pursue peace or to search for peace. What does he say? Let the peace of Christ rule (laughs) in your heart. It's actually the same word for an umpire or a referee. He's saying that the peace of Christ needs to be the determining factor when we're making decisions, when we're thinking about our future, when we're deciding what to do. The peace of Christ needs to be our lens. That's exactly what Paul gets at then in verse 17. Let me read that. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He uses that phrase in the name of Jesus or in Jesus' name, (laughs) something we use all the time, right? That's how we finish our prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. But what does that even mean, in Jesus' name? Is it just if I submit a project to my boss, I put a sticky note and say in Jesus' name on it and hand it to him? We're out taking a run and the whole time I'm just mumbling in Jesus' name the whole time? Is that what it means? Well, I guess it could, but this isn't a magic phrase. 
It's a posture. It's an attitude. It's a way that we live our life, continually living with Jesus' stamp of approval. It's that 90s bracelet that we all had, or some of us had, WWJD. Remember those? What would Jesus do? It gets at the nuance, the essence of what Paul is saying in this passage, living in light of what Christ would do, letting the peace of Christ rule in our heart, what would Jesus do? And I think we should bring that back because I know in my life, if I ask that question just a little bit more, there might be some things that would change. Would Jesus watch this Netflix series? Would Jesus talk to the referee that way? Would Jesus have that conversation with his coworker? Would Jesus really drive that fast? Okay, that hits too close to home. Let's rewind. <laughs> what would Jesus do? I think if each one of us asked that question a little bit more, there might be some things in our life that would change. So we need to live with Jesus' stamp of approval. <laughs> now, maybe you noticed I skipped over three important words. And one in, it was mentioned once in 15, one in 16, and one in 17. And Paul said this, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with grumbling in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts and complain continually. Is that what it says? No. Be thankful. <laughs> you know, if you said complain continually, it'd be a little easier because that feels like my default as of late. Maybe you don't struggle with the same thing, but I feel like I've complained a little more than I should the last couple of months. But that's not what Paul's asking us to do, is it? Be thankful. And Fritz mentioned this in announcements, that as Christ's followers, or in his prayer, that as Christ's followers, we have more to be thankful for than anybody. Because we have a right relationship with God, our sins are forgiven. We should be the most thankful, the most grateful people on the entire planet. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that cultivating an attitude of gratitude is going to be easy by any means. So maybe we can be intentional this week to be thankful. Maybe it means writing some things down that we're thankful for. Maybe it means having a conversation with family or friends, whoever might be around your table on Thursday. Maybe it's just to be you and Jesus, and you can talk to him and share your gratitude for what he's done. Maybe there might be a couple family members there, and you can share what God has done and what you're thankful for. Maybe you can have a conversation like, like Fritz and I had during announcements and ask, what's God been doing in your life? What can you be thankful for? And hear those stories of what God is doing. <laughs> It's not an easy season to be thankful, but that's not a very good excuse. There are always things that we can be thankful for. Now, I know the challenge of a text like this. I finish this and I just kind of feel like a failure <laughs> because there are so many things that we could work on. And I'm comforted by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. I'm comforted by 2 Peter chapter 1 where God tells us that He's given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. So maybe we can just simplify this week and just think of one or two things from this text that we can grow in. Maybe something God's convicted us of tonight. Maybe it's something we could even talk about in our small groups. But instead of thinking about 10 or 11 or 12 of the imperatives from this text, let's just pick one or two, one or two ways that we can grow this week to dress for success as a follower of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it's just been good to be together. Thankful for our young adult family and for your kindness in allowing us to meet. Um, we continue to ask that you'll protect those in our young adults, those in our church family, those in our community. 
We pray for those right now that are struggling with um, COVID-19 and the effects of the disease, that you might be with them, that you might heal their bodies, that you might give strength to those that are serving in hospitals and clinics and in homes, that you might protect those that are serving on the front lines. By your mercy, Father, we ask that you bring an end to this season. And by your grace, that things might return to normal very soon. But in the meantime, may we not use this as an, ex- as an excuse to complain or as an excuse not to show love to others. May this be the shining moment of our church family, of our young adult family, being a light on top of a hill, being the salt of the earth, shining brightly for Christ. And open our eyes to see the needs of those around us so that we can be your hands and feet, that we might dress for success. So as we take some time to dialogue in our small groups tonight, may this be a helpful time, an encouraging time. Thanks for your kindness in Jesus' name. Amen.